Several weeks ago, a uh, car bomb exploded in Karim Wasfi's Baghdad neighborhood. Now, it's not unusual for a car bomb to explode in Baghdad. In this case, the bomb killed 10 people. It destroyed a city block, shops, a small cafe. Uh, what was unusual was Kareem's response to the bomb blast. A couple of days after the blast, Kareem, who is a, a former conductor of the Iraqi Symphony, he's a cellist. I love cello, cello music. He took his cello and he went to the blast site. And he got there and he opened it up and he took it out and he unfolded a chair and he put it in the midst of broken glass and debris and he began to play beautiful music. It was so beautiful that people stopped to listen. Pedestrians, police officers, shopkeepers, street cleaners, motorists stopped their cars, rolled down the windows, created a traffic jam in downtown Baghdad. And afterwards, the reporter asked him, Why, why'd you do that? And Kareem responded, he said, I, I wanted to reach out to people exactly where they had experienced something so grotesque and ugly. Now, I happened to come across that story at the same time that I was uh, working on. I was studying for today's sermon. And God seemed to say to me, this is a picture to pass on to people. Okay, th this picture of Kareem getting out his cello and making beautiful music in the midst of destruction, this is a picture to pass on to people. We're in the third week, the final week of a three-part series on divorce. It's been called Untying the Knot. Here's the picture I have for you. God is handing you a cello, and he's saying, I want you to make beautiful music in the midst of a mess. And some of you are saying, but I don't play the cello. Come on, this is an analogy. Work with me, all right? God is handing you a cello, and, and, and he's asking, have you, have you been wounded by divorce? Maybe you carry the wounds of a, a spouse who's been rejected for another lover. Maybe you carry the wounds of a son or a daughter whose parents split up and one of them left the home. Maybe you bear self-inflicted wounds. It was your anger, your addiction that destroyed your last marriage. Maybe you bear the wounds of a loved one, a friend who tried to give good counsel and it was spurned. In, in, in the midst of a world wounded by divorce, God's given you a, a cello. This word picture is all about divorce recovery. That's our topic for today, divorce recovery. And our text is John chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 5? I love this story. I want you to follow along in your Bible. It's a story about healing. This is not the healing of a divorced person, but the healing of a man who was physically lame. He couldn't walk. But we're going to draw five steps from this guy's story that will be applicable to any kind of healing process that you and I may have to go through or help somebody else go through. Remember, first week of the series, I said, even if you've been untouched by divorce, you know somebody who's been wounded by divorce. God's called you as a follower of Jesus to step in, to help out to play beautiful cello music, okay? If you've not taken your outline from your program, I encourage you to take that out so you can jot down these five steps. Here's step one. Step one is to recognize stuckness. Now, when I put that in my notes, my spell checker on my computer said, this is not a word. Well, it is now. <laughs> so 
recognize stuckness. Let me read to you the first five verses of this story, beginning at verse 1, John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep's Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Let me stop there, give you a little bit of background. Uh, I happened to be at this very site just a month ago. So I was at the Pool of Bethesda with 48 people from Christ Community Church. We were on an Israel tour. This is one of my favorite spots in Israel. Now, the Pool of Bethesda in ancient Jerusalem, it was a water reservoir. Water would be gathered from the nearby, the adjacent to the city, Mount of Olives. It would be brought by aqueduct to the Pool of Bethesda inside the city walls. Pool of Bethesda was actually two pools, very deep, 45 feet deep, comprised an area uh, the size of a football field. So, uh, you know, pretty big area. And it was rumored that, that the pool had restorative healing powers. Now, historians say the r rumor may have sprung up for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason was the ancient Romans had built a statue nearby to the Greek god of healing. So, uh, you know, by its proximity to the statue, people may have thought that the pool of Bethesda had some healing power. Another reason why people rumored that it, it might have restorative powers was because every once in a while the water would bubble. Now, we know that the reason it bubbled is because there was an underground spring. But people back then said the reason it bubbles is because an angel comes by, stirs up the water, and the first dude in the water gets healed. So, so there is restorative power, it is rumored. However, we don't have any credible stories of anybody getting healed there, except this dude who's healed by Jesus, not by the pool of Bethesda. So, so picture, if you would, the, the people who gather here, we're told there were five colonnades that were, were built, you know, kind of porches under which you could be shaded from the sun, and people who would gather, who, who would gather were disabled, verse 4 says. They were uh, blind, they were lame, they were paralyzed. And they were hoping that something would happen by way of healing, but we know from history that very little happened. What they had hoped would happen never happened. The key character in our story, he'd been an invalid for 38 years. John 5 doesn't tell us how many of these years he'd been hanging out at the pool of Bethesda, but we're kind of led to believe that he'd been there long enough to stop expecting any healing to take place. He had grown accustomed to being disabled. I mean, everybody around him was disabled. Nobody was getting healed. He was stuck. He was stuck in the status quo. And some of you, because you're living in the wake of a divorce, you are similarly stuck. Now, maybe you don't recognize your stuckness. I want to talk about two kinds of stuckness here. And, and one of them is not very obvious, so maybe you don't see it. Let me begin with the more apparent form of stuckness. It happens when we get bogged down in the grieving process. When we get bogged down in the grieving process. Now, years ago, psychologists identified five stages of grief. And they said, when you, you lose a loved one, specifically to death, you're going to go through these five stages. It's healthy. It's natural. Unless... 
unless you get bogged down, unless you get stuck at one of these five stages. And, and people who are grieving the loss of a marriage relationship, they go through these five stages as well, and it's very possible they, they get stuck. Let, let, let me quickly scroll through the five stages. Stage one is called denial, where you say, you know, this can't be happening to me. You know, my marriage is not coming to an end. No. I pick up my wedding album and I see pictures of a happy couple who have just promised till death do us part. Can't believe it's over. That's stage one, denial. Stage two is anger. You know, you're angry at your spouse. You're angry at the inept marriage counselor who couldn't save your marriage. You're angry at meddling third parties. You're angry at God. You're angry at the stress of your situation. You're angry at yourself. You're angry. This is one of the reasons you stay stuck at this stage because anger is a drain. It saps you of energy, spiritual energy, emotional energy, physical energy. You don't have energy with which to get unstuck. Third stage is bargaining. You move past anger and you start reasoning to yourself, well, maybe if I do this and I do this and I do this, then my circumstances will change or my spouse will change. I mean, maybe this is all a bad dream, and if I just do the right thing, I'll wake up for this dream, from this dream. Stage four is depression. When nothing changes, you suddenly start feeling the future is looking awfully bleak. You say, my family's a mess. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. And quite frankly, it feels like this is going to go on forever, today and tomorrow and the next day, and I'm never going to feel any different than I feel right now. Now, fortunately, if you keep moving through these first four stages of grief after a divorce, you will eventually end up at stage five, which is acceptance. But let me say to you today, if you see signs, if you see signs in your life of denial or anger or bargaining or depression, you're currently stuck. And it really doesn't matter if, if your divorce was three weeks ago or three months ago or three years ago or 30 years ago. Doesn't matter how long you've been divorced. If you're stuck, you're stuck. Time doesn't unstick you. I talked to a woman after the service last night and her first words were, I've been stuck for 18 years. The steps that we're going through today, this is what will unstick you. Step number one is to recognize stuckness. Now before I move on to step two, let, let me identify a second kind of stuckness because this is the one that, that is not so readily apparent because it doesn't look like stuckness. In fact, ever since your divorce, your, your life has looked like a whirlwind of activity. You've got a new job, you've got a new house, you've got new friends, you've got new recreational pursuits, you got a new look, you got a new significant other, you may even have a new marriage, possibly a new family. From all outward appearances, you are anything but stuck. So let me tell you a story that I hope will help you recognize this second kind of stuckness. This is a supposedly true story. I'd heard it years ago, and so I, I googled it to verify its truthfulness, and it was online. So... has to be true. 
A couple of British explorers were traipsing through Central Africa. This is the end of the 19th century, the late 1800s. And one day they looked at their calendar and they suddenly realized that the, the ship that was due to pick them up on the coast was going to be coming in less than a week. And so they needed to book it. They needed to get to the coast. So they packed up all their equipment and they gave it to their African porters and they took took off, and the first day they traveled many miles, the second day they traveled even more miles, the third day they got up and their African porters sat on the ground and said, we're not going anywhere. And the British explorer said, why? And the porter said, well, because we've been moving so fast, we got to wait for our souls to catch up with us. It's possible if you've been through a divorce that you've been moving at such a fast clip ever since the divorce that your soul has not caught up with you. Your soul, what, what is it I'm talking about here? Well, I meet people all the time. They got divorced. They brushed it off. They moved on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. However, they, they still have not processed the breakup of their previous marriage. There's unfinished business, in some cases unfinished business with God, there's still something that needs to be understood or something that needs to be repented of or something that needs to be fixed. Their soul is stuck, though you wouldn't know it from outward appearances. The, the disabled man in John 5 had be, become so accustomed to the status quo that he could no longer see his own stuckness. Are you stuck? Do you know somebody who's stuck? Step one, recognize stuckness. Step two, choose health. Choose health. Go back to the story. We, we left off at verse five. Let's pick it up at verse six. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he was stuck, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I've no one to help me with the pool, into the pool, when the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, I, I love Jesus' question here in verse 6. In fact, I chose the question as the title of today's sermon, Do You Want to Get Well? Because when you read this first time through, you, you say, well, that's a strange question. I mean, get, given the circumstances, Jesus is talking to a guy who's been disabled for 38 years, unable to walk. Every single day of his life, he has to ask friends or family, would you please carry me to the pool of Bethesda? And one day Jesus comes along and has the audacity to ask the question, do you want to get well? Hello, it's obvious, isn't it? What do you think? Well, no, it's not obvious. I think what was obvious to Jesus was that this guy had grown comfortable with his situation, just like some people grow comfortable with the trauma drama that follows in the wake of the breakup of their marriage. People love trauma drama. <laughs> Everybody expects there to be a certain amount of legal wrangling and character assassination and tug-of-war over the kids and new flings to cover up old wounds, dark days, and so on. That's, that's what comes with, with divorce. You just get used to it. Gives you something to grouse about. We're a culture that excels at grousing. You, you don't believe me? Just listen. Eavesdrop on conversation sometime. I, I do this professionally. Yes. You know, if I'm sitting at Starbucks or I'm, you know, I'm, 
in the waiting area, waiting to get on a flight. or what? I just listen to conversations. What do you think people talk about? You think most of their conversation is uplifting, positive stuff? Absolutely not. People, people love to talk about those who've done them wrong. Could be their boss that they're griping about. It could be their hairdresser. It could be the car repairman. Could be their kid's third grade teacher. Could be their ex-spouse. You know, we we love trauma drama. If you've been divorced and you've learned to live with all the crud that goes with the breakup of a marriage, you've kind of grown accustomed to it. Jesus wants to ask you a question today. The question is this, do you want to get well? I mean, really, do do you want to get well? Getting well, let me warn you, getting well begins by inviting God to diagnose where you're currently sick. Are you willing to do that? You know, have you ever sat down with a blank piece of paper since your divorce? Or, or maybe in conversation with a Christian counselor and answered the question, what did I contribute to the demise of my marriage? Now, it may be that 90% of the problem was contributed by your ex-spouse. And I don't say that facetiously because I run into it all the time. You, you would think it's always a 50-50 contribution to the problem, but oftentimes it's one person who's sort of the guilty party, so to speak. So so let's just say for the sake of argument that most of the fault lies at the feet of your ex-spouse. I still want to ask you, have you ever sat down and answered the question, what did I contribute to the demise of my marriage? Because you can't get well till you've diagnosed the sickness. And once you've diagnosed the sickness, the Bible calls that confession, then you're able to seek the healing, which the Bible calls forgiveness. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you want to get well? Then confess your sins from the past. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for healing. Step one, recognize stuckness. Step two, choose health. Step three, do something. Do something. Go back to the story. We left off at verse seven. The guy's complaining that he never gets in the pool in time to be healed. And then Jesus said to him, verse eight, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Came across an interesting blurb in my news magazine a week or so ago about a guy named Ray Lee. Uh, Ray was exercising at home, working out at home, and his heartbeat spiked to 190 beats per minute. And he began to feel chest pains, and so his wife picked up the phone, called uh, the ambulance. The ambulance came and was taking Ray to the hospital. The ambulance hit this huge pothole, and the pothole was so big that it jarred Ray. It jolted his heart, and suddenly it dropped from 190 beats per minute to a regular healthy 60 beats per minute. Hey, he got there, and they say, well, it must have been some kind of arrhythmia, but you're okay now, dude, and went home. Now, why do I tell you this story? I'm not sure it was an amusing story. I had no idea where it would. (laughs) Now, here's here's the point. Here's the point of the story. You've been through a divorce. One, recognize stuckness. Two, choose health. Ask forgiveness for the past. Okay? Three, do something. Something that will jolt your heart. 
something that will start you on the road to recovery. Now, now when I say do something, I, I'm not suggesting that you do kind of whatever comes to mind. Well, I got to do something. So I'll move to San Diego or, you know, I'll buy a dog. I'll take up golf. I'll go on a cruise. Now, now in this case, what the guy did is he followed Jesus' instructions. So when I say do something, what I mean by that is figure out what Jesus wants you to do and do it. Now, if you've gone through a divorce, allow me to suggest a few some things that you might want to consider doing. I think this is biblically sound advice. It's intended to jolt your heart, promote your recovery. Four quick action steps. You could come up with more, but just want to prime the pump here. First, Talk with a Christian counselor and join a discovery, a divorce recovery group, rather. Talk with a Christian counselor to work through what went wrong. You know, and how, how can I get healthy so I can move forward? Get into a divorce recovery group. This is a, a, a national sort of ministry. We happen to host it here at Christ Community Church on Tuesday nights at Care Night. We just started a new semester of 10 weeks this last week. In fact, if you're if you're a son or a daughter high school student whose mom and dad have gone through divorce, there's actually a student part of the program that you could be, that you can join. So, so you can learn how to move on, and you could do it in the context of other people who are struggling with the same thing. Second, do something I'd recommend is don't miss gathering with fellow Christ followers. Now, I deliberately put this in the negative. Don't miss because I sense a common impulse among divorced people, and that is to withdraw. And this is done for several reasons. If you've gone through a divorce, you're emotionally exhausted. You don't want to think about relationships. Uh, you're now single, and all your friends are, are married people, so you feel kind of awkward. Your, your life is now pretty busy, especially if you're now a single parent, and you just don't have time for relationships. And i got to tell you, friend, you have been made in the image of a relational God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit in one God. When he made you in his image, he made you to be a relational being, to thrive on community. And there, you know, there's a time and a place to get off by your own, on your own. But you also need times when you gather with other believers. So don't, don't miss a weekend service where you're singing with hundreds of other people, lifting your hearts in praise to God. Don't miss a community group involvement. If you're not in a community group, get in one so you can study God's word and apply it to your life and pray for each other in a small band of brothers and sisters. When it comes time to gather with others, you, you will feel inclined to stay home, to cocoon, to curl up in a fetal position. And I want to say, don't do it. Resist the urge. Move out. You need the community. Third suggestion, find a place to serve. This is another counterintuitive step. I say, say it's counterintuitive because your tendency at this stage will be to say, you know, I don't have the time or energy to serve right now. I've just been through this divorce. I'm single parenting. I'm seeing a counselor. I'm making major adjustments to my usual routine. Uh, serving is something that's going to have to wait until I move on to the next period of life. And I'd say to you, no, you're missing out on the therapeutic benefits of serving. Serving is not a drain. It's life-giving. You know, when you determine that you're going to show up on a second Saturday and spend three hours serving the poor in our community, 
When you sign up to tutor an at-risk child through our Kids Hope ministry, one hour a week. You know, when, when you fix a meal for a neighbor who just got home from the hospital, cancer surgery, or is out of work, it, it takes you out of your problem and it allows you to focus on somebody else's problem. It's relief. It's a stress reducer. In fact, if you know someone who's gone through a divorce, I would say find a place to serve it, then invite them to serve with you. Invite them to serve with you. Here's another thing you can do. Fourth, do something. Sign up for the next FPU course. Now, the next FPU course isn't offered to till fall, but this is the course of uh, money management put together. You know, the curriculum's been written by Dave Ramsey, the nationally known financial expert, and we use it here at Christ Community, there isn't a person across our four campuses who couldn't benefit from, from the principles that are taught in this course, but you especially need it if you've gone through a divorce because the financial realities of your life have changed dramatically. I was talking to a counselor, a friend of mine, someone who counsels at Christ Community Church, and he said, you know, when, when you go through a divorce, your self-worth takes a real hit. And he said the temptation is to go out and spend money on yourself in an attempt to lift your spirits. And he said it's disastrous. So you go out and you buy a new sports car, or you buy a new wardrobe, or you eat out a lot, or you take a trip, or, or, and it empties the bank account. Or, or you just determine, you know, I may have gone through a divorce, but I'm going to maintain the same standard of living I had beside. But now you've got to do it without the income of your ex-spouse. You end up in deep weeds, end up in debt. And so I can't recommend highly enough this Financial Peace University. And by the way, there's a, uh, there is a program, Financial Peace puts together a course for students as well, high school students. Moms and dads, I can't think of anything better to train your kids in than how to manage their money, right? So when you hear it offered in fall, do something. Sign up for it. So I've just given you four do-somethings. If you want to get well, number one, recognize stuckness. Step two, choose health. Step three, do, do something. Give you four action steps to consider that will jolt your heart and put you on the path to recovery. Here's the fourth step. Reject sin. Now let's go back to the story. We left off at verse 9, but I'm going to backtrack to verse 8. So you get the context again. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. The Lord forbids, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. I was looking forward to, to going to the pool of Bethesda uh, this last time I was in Israel because I planned to pray there for a friend of mine who's sick. Uh, not because I believe there's anything magical about the pool of Bethesda, but I knew of at least one healing that had taken place there. You know, this story in John chapter 5. So I wanted to pray for a friend of mine. 
In fact, I'll mention this friend's name because it's someone I'd love you to pray for as well. Uh, His name is John Culver, and John is the campus pastor at Blackberry Creek. So hello to all you Blackberry Creekers who are joining us. And a few months ago, John started a battle with cancer. And John is not only a good buddy of mine and a ministry partner, but he's also a dad of six kids, nine years of age and younger. So this is, a, this is a big battle, and I want you to join me in praying earnestly for John's healing. And so I, I told John ahead of time, I said, John, when we get to the pool of Bethesda, I'm going to pray for you there. And I invited everybody on the trip to pray with me as well for John, and I got done, and I thought, well, I did what I came to the pool of Bethesda to do. And then Eric Rowe just ruined it for me. Eric Rogers, our executive pastor, he was helping to lead the trip. And at the various sites, uh, different pastors on the trip were sharing a scriptural insight. Here's what happened at this site from a Bible story and making application to our lives. And so Eric read what you would expect, the story from John chapter 5. But instead of parking on the healing of the man, he parked on what Jesus said to him after the healing in verse 14 that I just read to you a moment ago. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And Eric pointed out, he said, you know, oftentimes in our lives, we're faced with sickness or some crisis, not because of anything we've done wrong. It's just because we live in a fallen world. However, Eric added, however, there seem to be occasions in Scripture when God allows a crisis, something bad to happen to somebody in order to get their attention, in order to convince them they, they need to stop disobeying God, start walking in obedience to God. So Eric had the nerve to ask all of us to take a few minutes and see if there was anything in our lives that God wanted to get us, get our attention on. So here's the application for those of you who've gone through a divorce. You know, if you want to heal up, If you want God's blessing in your life, if you want to experience true joy and a sense of purpose, then make an honest inventory of your life and ask God to help you break any sinful patterns you see. Now, a few moments ago, when we were talking about choosing life, you know, I spoke of the retroactive look. Look back at what you might have contributed to the demise of your marriage and confess it, receive forgiveness. Now I'm not talking retroactively. I'm talking about today. Are there sinful patterns that you see in your life? Let me give you several sinful patterns to consider. This is far from an exhaustive list. Again, I just want to get you thinking. But let's start with bitterness. Do you experience flashes of resentment toward your ex-spouse? Is it impossible for you to resist gossiping about them when their name comes up? to get a grimace on your face, your stomach muscles tighten up, you say something nasty. Have you ever truly forgiven them? Here's another sinful pattern that I see pop up with regularity among divorced people, sexual immorality. Now, so you're you're dating again, and some of you are sleeping with the person you're dating, even though you're not married. And you're justifying it on this basis. You're saying, well, you know, I know abstinence is important for uh, young people who've never been married, but I've been married, I've had sex, and so I'm going to go on having sex. Friends, this is not like a driver's license, you know, where now that you've got it, you continue to use it. 
Where did you get this idea? Certainly not in the Bible. You know, sex is reserved for those who are in a committed marriage relationship to somebody else for life. And we could stop right now. We could look after, at, at Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that teaches this. I'll give you one that you ought to jot down and read sometime. Even if you're not divorced, you're single, and you're sleeping with someone you're dating, read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. Because in that passage, God says he will punish. That's God's word, by the way. God's word is punished. This isn't Pastor Jim's word. This isn't uh, guilt tripping on my part. God says he will punish the person who takes advantage of a relationship to have sex with somebody they're not married to. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do something that I know deliberately. It's like taking a stick and poking God in the eye. I want God's blessing in my life. If he says, don't do this, or you'll not only forfeit blessing, you'll be punished. I don't want to do that. Here's another sinful pattern that needs to be broken in our lives, especially if we've gone through a divorce. Self-absorption. Now, every one of us has to fight this natural sinful tendency, self-absorption. Came across a news blurb just this past week. A survey that was taken in Britain discovered that the average woman looks at herself in the mirror 16 times a day. 16 times a day. All those guys are thinking, those ladies. It turns out guys look at themselves 23 times a day. (laughs) Those of us who have no hair to comb, it's only 21 times probably, but you know. This this tendency to self-absorption, it's quite natural. And when a crisis hits, like divorce, self-absorption just skyrockets because suddenly my whole world is revolving around me. You know, I am preoccupied with my broken dreams and my mistreatment and my financial hardship, my grueling schedule, my lame friends, my insensitive relatives, my, 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 oh my, oh my. Self-absorption is an extremely subtle but very self-destructive sin. Ask God to deliver you from it. Reject self-absorption. If you see it popping up in your life, a certain amount of self-pity or every conversation revolves around you and your problems, then take the advice I offered a few moments ago. Go serve somebody. Break the stranglehold that self-absorption has in your life. Now, that's just a look, a brief look at a few sinful patterns you might want to break if your desire is to get well. Ask God, get alone with God this week and say, okay, God, are there any others? Now, if you're real gutsy, sit down with a good friend and ask the same question. Do you see any sinful patterns in my life that need to be broken? See, if you want God's blessing, if you want to get well, then take Jesus' advice to the man he had healed. Stop sinning. Step number five, pursue Christ. Let's go back to the story. There's one last verse. You know, after Jesus says, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had made him well. Okay, I want you, I want you to read between the lines of the story here. 
why does this guy go back to the religious leaders and tell them it was Jesus who healed him? Why do you think? Think the guy was motivated by gratitude? I'm just so thankful. Or maybe he, he was motivated by a desire to give Jesus praise. Hey, let, let's give credit where credit is due. It was Jesus. No, he's a squealer. The dude's a rat, okay? He knows that the religious leaders are out for Jesus' hide, and he's probably insulted that Jesus had just looked him in the eye and said, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. And so he turns informant. He deliberately does something that's going to get Jesus in trouble. Now, now, what I want you to note about the, the guy's behavior, it's the exact opposite of how most healed people in the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, how most healed people respond. Most people who are healed by Jesus immediately become fully devoted followers of his. They say, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let me recommend if you've gone through a divorce and you want Jesus to thoroughly heal you, determine now determine now that you're going to begin following Jesus wholeheartedly. I mean, you, you need Jesus, like the rest of us need Jesus, to be the center of your life. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you, you can't look back at a time when you consciously, deliberately bent your knee and you said words like this, Jesus, my sin has separated me from you. I know that you died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. You, you took the penalty my sins deserve, death. And so I ask you to forgive me to become the savior of my life. And I get off the throne of my life and make you king. You rule. I want to follow you. If you've never said that, do it today. I mean, if it would help you stop at the Welcome Center at any one of our four campuses, go in and say, hey, today's the day I want to surrender my life to Christ. Happens all the time around here. We would love to help you take that step. And if you've taken the step but you've never gone public with it, your next opportunity to go public is June 13 and 14. That's our next baptism celebration. Jesus says in the gospel accounts, if you won't own me before, before other people, I won't own you before the Father in heaven. So it's really important. If you mean business, you, you truly want to follow Jesus, it's critical that you're willing to go public with it. This weekend... We have our last baptism classes, so you know, pick one out and attend it and plan to be part of that baptism on June 13 and 14. If you've gone through a divorce, pursue Christ. Pursue Christ. Say it with me. Pursue Christ. It's okay, but it could be better. Let's do it again. Pursue Christ. Now, here, here's the reason I wanted you to say that out loud. It's because one of the temptations you'll face after your divorce is you'll try to fill the hole in your life with somebody else. And, and that's wonderful if the somebody else happens to be Jesus because he's the only one who can fill the hole in your life. But so many divorced people I know try to fill the hole with a new dating or even marriage partner. And I can't tell you how many disasters I've witnessed in that regard. The truth is, hear me, the truth is you are not ready for a new romantic relationship until Christ is the center of your life. Yeah. yeah, I'm not ruling out a new romantic relationship, not ruling out an eventual remarriage, but you know, Jesus has got to come first. 
You know, or you'll become dependent upon a person who can't do for you what only Jesus can do. And so I'd say, don't, don't rush into a new dating or marriage relationship until you are sold out to Christ. You're determined to walk in obedience to him. Now, just a footnote to this point, and I'm going to wrap things up with this. Because a couple of weeks ago when I launched this series, I told you that I would say a brief word today about what the Bible teaches regarding remarriage. So let me, let me do that right now. So there are actually two categories uh, of people that the Bible addresses in this regard. So if you've gone through divorce and you're wondering about remarriage or somebody you know has gone through a divorce and you're wondering, is, is it okay? What does the Bible say about them getting remarried? Here's the first category. The first category are, are, are those whose divorce was on biblical grounds. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go back a couple of weeks and listen to that sermon because we, we said there are two exceptions for which God allows divorce in Scripture. Okay, one of them is sexual immorality and the other is abandonment. So if your partner has been sexually unfaithful to you or has abandoned you, and if you want to know what that means, you've got to go back and listen to the message because we teased it out in detail. If that's your story, then you're absolutely free to remarry. The, the Bible is clear about that. Now, the only thing I'd caution you of is this. In fact, let me tell you what our, what our protocol, what our, what our policy is in that regard. We don't marry anybody around here. We don't officiate at a wedding where a person's been, been divorced for less than two years. Why? Because we just outlined five steps that you need to go through for recovery. You know, this is, this is not a quickie sort of thing. And if you get remarried too soon and you've not go, gone through these steps, it's going to be disastrous. And so we want to make sure that you have, you've had time to fully recover. Now, there's a second category of divorced people. It's actually made up of two groups, maybe a second and third category. Okay, in, in, in this category are those whose divorce was not on biblical grounds. In other words, it wasn't because of sexual, sexual immorality, it wasn't because of abandonment, it was because of what we, we call irreconcilable differences. You couldn't get, a, get along and so you, you split up. That's not a biblical reason for divorce. I tell people all the time, jerkness is not a biblical reason for divorce. If it was, there have been times in my marriage where Sue would have been tempted, you know, get rid of this guy. So it's got to be sexual immorality, abandonment. If your breakup was not on those grounds, or it was on biblical grounds, but you were the guilty party. So it was your sexual immorality, it was your abandonment that led to the demise of the marriage. You're in the second category. Can you ever get remarried? Let, let me tell you what we believe the Bible teaches in this regard. We, we feel the Bible says, yes, you can get remarried, but there are three conditions that absolutely must be met. Condition number one, you've got to thoroughly repent of the sin that led to the demise of your first marriage. And I mean, there's got to be remorse. There's got to be brokenheartedness. Maybe even a willingness to go to that ex-partner and say, I was wrong. You know, number two, you know, beside a willingness to acknowledge wrongdoing in the past, there's got to be an attempt made to restore the former marriage if it's at all possible. Okay, Jesus in Matthew 19 says, if you're not willing to do that, if you're just moving on into a new marriage, Jesus says, it's adultery. Okay, you're, you're, you're just, you're, because the first marriage isn't broken up yet. 
And, 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 and so what if the ex-partner has moved on? What if they're remarried? What if they have no interest in restoring things? Well, then you are free. Then you're free to consider remarriage. But there has to be an honest attempt on your part. If you're truly brokenhearted over your sin, you want to say, okay, God, is there any way to restore that former relationship? And the third thing, you've got to go through the five steps that we just described from John chapter 5. And again, that's going to take you at least a couple of years. We're not going to marry you in under two years. Now, what I'd like to do as we close, I'd like to pray for us as a church. This has been a series that I know has incredible practical value in many of your lives. And even, even if you personally have not been touched by divorce, somebody you know has. And I hope and I pray you'll be able to use the material from the last three weeks to be an ambassador for Christ in the lives of other people. So let me pray for you when I'm done praying. I'm going to ask our campus pastors to say a closing uh, word at each of our campuses, but uh, let me pray for you. Lord God, I want to lift up those who are gathered at the four campuses of Christ Community Church. I want to pray that the things we've learned from your word about divorce would be helpful to us, not only bringing healing to those who need healing, but also that it would equip those of us who want to be your ambassadors in a world that's broken, that it would enable us to be cello players who are able to step into situations where there's, there, there's been destruction, there have been bombs exploding and debris flying and voices raised in anger. And you've given us the role of being peacemakers. I, I want to pray first for those whose marriages are solid and they love you, and I just pray that they would continue doing what they're doing because our church, our world, needs solid marriages. I pray that you would help people to continue to push roots down into your word individually so that a husband and a wife would be bringing to the marriage individual personal walks with Christ that would make the relationship that much stronger. I want to pray for those, Lord God, whose, whose marriage is currently at an impasse and maybe they've even considered divorce. I want to pray, God, that the, the current course that we're running on Tuesday nights, marriage restoration, that they plug into that or they plug into the help of a counselor. I pray that they pull back from the edge of the precipice. I pray that they would cry out to you today and say, God, it seems impossible that things are going to change, but you're the God of the impossible. I pray today in Jesus' name, you'd rescue broken marriages. I pray today for people who've gone through divorce and there's no going back. The toothpaste is out of the tube. And now they have to apply the things that we learned today about recovery. I pray, God, that you would restore them to full health and vitality and a sense that God's blessing has been restored to my life and I can move on now. Faithfulness to Christ, my King. Give them hope. Give them a sense that you still have much for them to do in this world. And God, I do pray for our ministries, our divorce recovery ministry and our marriage restoration ministry on Tuesday night, and I pray, uh, Lord God, that you would give great wisdom to those who lead there, and you'd give great vulnerability and openness and humility to those who participate, and I pray that the word would get out in our community, and that people who don't even come to Christ Community Church would begin to take advantage of what we offer in this regard. God, as we go into a broken world, give us a cello to play. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said,